The RBA demands more unemployment, Greens delay action on housing, the referendum is coming along with the dirt machine, but the voice is winning. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and while I am at our home in Victoria, I am joined by the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, my wife, your friend, and the owner of the cutest pair of baby sheep ears you've ever seen. <laughs> Coming to us live from Sydney is Van Batham. How are you, Van? Well, I'm in Sydney, and I've got to say it's been really cold. It's really cold. I don't understand it. This is brand confusion. This is, uh, what do they say? Always take the weather with you. Who are you saying that? Hunters and collectors? No, it's a crowded house song, Ben. Crowded Good Lord. Because oh, I always forget that you are much younger than me and you don't understand music properly. This is, this is the great burden of our relationship. Yes, indeed, indeed it is. Talking about great burdens, Van, I want to talk about the RBA again. Because oh, I love it when you talk about the RBA. Uh, we all do. We all just feel so heard when you speak about the RBA. RBA. The RBA, like the aardvark. Not at all. The aardvark is a noble animal. And I would definitely say that the RBA is an ignoble animal. Indeed. Indeed. I want to give a shout out here to Sally McManus uh, at the ACTU for continuing to hold the line along with the good folks at the uh, Centre for Future Work uh, and the Australia Institute because they have been absolutely vindicated with the last set of minutes from the RBA board meeting. They They have continually said that profiteering is the problem, profiteering is driving inflation, that workers are bearing the costs and bearing the brunt of inflation and indeed bearing the brunt of the RBA's ham-fisted attempts to bring it under control. And all the while, Phil Lowe and the other mystics up on that great temple uh, at the RBA have said that, no, 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 there's a wage explosion and a wage price spiral just around the corner. Well, Sally McManus, the union movement, the Australian Institute have been proven correct. The RBA has admitted now that companies have put uh, prices up above where they needed to on the basis of cost-adjusted inflation, and they are reaping benefits. Now, if you ever needed a reason to join your union, let it be that the union movement is fighting not just in the workplace but in the very halls of the high priests of capitalism to ensure that your wages keep pace and your standard of living increases. You can join at australianunions.org.au slash wow. Uh, You can join right now. Join while you're listening to Van and I talk about the details of what has happened because let me tell you, friends, it's going to get grim if these uh, Freebonite clerics are allowed to continue with their holy war against working people. Do you like the rhetoric I've ramped up today, Van? I'm just... 
holy war against working people. I think, I don't know if uh, listeners are picking this up, but Ben and I have had what I believe is referred to as quite the day in separate capacities. I am in Sydney where everything I touch breaks. And uh, and Ben has had a bad one as well. So if the if the rhetoric has amped up to holy war, that's a bit of context for you. Like I don't know if I'm des- I've, I'm definitely you know calling for shy halud and and riding the de- and like you know getting worm sign, um, which is how obviously I, I conceive of holy war in very David Lynch June terms. But yeah, it's been a day holy war, Ben. Indeed, because let me say this, Van, Phil Lowe back on June 6th. He's not worth a giant worm in the desert, let me just say. I mean, a lot of trouble you go to with the thumpers, you know, they're attracted to rhythmic vibrations. And, yeah, would I stand out in the deserts of Arrakis calling for large worms to ride in against Phil Lowe? It's a lot of trouble to go to. But then again, I think a lot of trouble must be gone to. A lot of trouble needs to be gone to because on the 6th of June, Phil Lowe said, and I quote, if people can cut back spending or in some cases find additional hours of work, that will put them back into a positive cash flow position. Now, just yesterday, his deputy, his deputy governor, said there needs to be 140,000 fewer people employed and that we need to get unemployment up to 4.5%. Some economists are saying that to get to that number, there'll need to be 170,000 jobs destroyed. Now, we are in the middle of a great jobs boom. The Albanese Labor government has created more jobs in its first year in government than any government of the modern era, 465,500. Of those jobs, most have been full-time, 85%, and 189,000 of those full-time roles went to women, which means there are more women in full-time employment than ever before. Underemployment has crept up a little bit, though. It's gone from 6.2% of people to 6.4%. And for the first time ever, 14 million people in Australia are employed. Now. These are all fantastic numbers for ordinary, everyday people, but apparently not for the clerics of the RBA. Because despite all of that, they want more people to be unemployed. Now, wages growth is only 3.7%. CPI is 6.8%. This means there is no wages outbreak. And the last time wages were growing at this level was in 2012, and the unemployment rate was 5.6%. So high unemployment is not driving up wages, and wages are clearly not driving up inflation. So what's driving up inflation, Van? Greed. It's greed. It's heaps of greed. And the Australia Institute made this point weeks ago that it was greed, and the RBA were like, oh, how could you say such a thing? And there was a big kerfuffle. And then, of course, the OECD, led by notorious communist Matthias Gorman, remember him? Remember Matthias Gorman? Was Minister for Finance in the former Liberal government, is an absolute, like, Tory ideologue and was the one who went on national television in Australia saying, oh, high unemployment is a deliberate feature of the economy that we're running. That Matthias Gorman. 
Yeah, wage suppression. Sorry, yeah. wage suppression. I get my high unemployments and wage suppressions mixed up. Oh, because high unemployment is a form of wage suppression. So here's the OECD now. Remember, he got to fly around the world, the taxpayer expense, to campaign for the position. And the OECD has come out and said, yeah, it's great. All right. And we talked about it. I wrote about it for The Guardian. Like, this is the recognition that's happening. And finally, yeah, we're getting a bit of institutional admission that it might be you know, a bit of greed. But even even with all of that, just yesterday. Oh, oh, when I say greed, like obviously I mean corporate greed. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think any worker in Australia could be accused of greed at the moment. To, to be accused of greed, you have to be ahead of what you need, not struggling to keep up. And I want to give a shout-out here to the busy workers in Shepparton who I think now are entering their 26th week of industrial action. I know that there's a fundraising page uh, on the We Are Union uh, website. You can just Google that uh, and you can help raise funds for them because they are literally on the front line of uh, the campaign against greed, Australia's richest privately owned company, one of Australia's richest men, uh, Richard Pratt, has attempted to suppress their wages and conditions uh, for nearly six months, nearly six months. You know, this is, it's, it's symbolic and emblematic of the kind of greedflation we're seeing. We're seeing it in power companies. We're seeing it, uh, obviously through, uh, rents. We're seeing it through banks, but we're also seeing it through supermarkets, uh, and large corporations across the board. You know, this, Van, I think is really important because it's actually now in the minutes of the RBA, and I'm just going to read directly so that people know what it says. And and they've written as minutes, so it's a bit dull, but it says this. Members noted that wages growth was still consistent with the inflation target. While future trends in productivity were uncertain, the outcomes over recent times had been disappointing. Members discussed the possibility of implicit indexation of wages to past high inflation and the potential for this to become widespread. Similarly, members observed that some firms were indexing their prices, either implicitly or directly, to past inflation. These developments created an increased risk that high inflation would be persistent, which would make it more difficult to keep the economy on the narrow path. Now, This is an ideological position because for months, for 12 months, they have talked about the threat of wages outstripping inflation. And at no point have wages outstripped inflation. Even the minimum wage increase, as important and as good an outcome as it was, did not outstrip inflation. This is an ideological position taken by the RBA. And, you know, Van, I did a bit of digging around today because, you know, I'm a bit sick and tired of the RBA. I'm a bit sick and tired of the Federal Reserve in the US. And I'm a bit sick and tired of the Bank of England kind of being the benchmarks for how we think about monetary policy. Because clearly, if they're going to go out and say hundreds of thousands of people should be made unemployed and that's the only way to tackle inflation and it hasn't worked and it isn't working and it's not dealing with the underlying problem, which is profiteering corporations, 
then there has to be other solutions. And I happened to find some tweets about Japan. I have, I'm aware that you found some tweets about Japan. They're very saucy tweets about Japan. Tell us about your saucy Japanese tweets, my lovely. Well, Japan doesn't seem to subscribe to the Friedmanite monetary cult. No, they don't, do they? Oh, are they one of the healthiest economies in the world? They appear to be one of the healthiest economies in the world. Now, What a I'm coincidence. Not, I'm not saying they haven't had problems in the past, but here's where Japan's at. Its cash rate is negative 0.1%. Inflation is 3.5%. It did peak at 4.3%, but it's 3.5% now. Importantly, Japan's wage growth is 3.67%, which means real wages are outstripping inflation. Now, Japan has a higher union density than Australia, 16.5% to 12.5%. Its unemployment rate is 2.6%, 2.6%. And its participation rate is slightly lower than ours, 63 versus about 66%. So Japan's monetary settings are all geared towards people getting money, investing money, driving their economy, and being product productive. Our monetary settings are all about keeping inflation low by keeping spending low and making things more expensive for your average borrower, which in Australia means households. It's a remarkably different different approach which has a remarkably different outcome. Their unemployment rate is lower. Their Wages are higher, wage growth is higher, their inflation is lower. And not just that, the inequality is is better. They have less inequality. Japan's richest 10% only earn four and a half times as much as their poorest 10%. That's extraordinary. Pardon? That's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean that is significant. What is it in Australia? Do you have the number? Uh, in Australia, it's many times that. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a good example. So in Australia, you need 5.5 million US dollars to enter the top 1% of wealthiest people. In Japan, that number is $1.7 million. So it is a – and this is still one of the wealthiest economies in the world. Just the wealth is more evenly spread. The Gini coefficient score – which, Van, I know you've talked a lot about in the past, is one of the world's most recognised metrics for inequality. Well, I I do talk about the Gini coefficient all the time. I mean, I just drop it into conversation, like constantly, you know, here we are, somebody saying, what about some bread? And I'm like, oh, let's talk about the Gini coefficient. Yeah, so it's an index um, that measures degrees of inequality in the distribution of income and wealth, she said, quickly reading from the internet. (laughs) But it's, it's um, it's used as a map to how wealth is distributed and who's getting what wealth. And funnily enough, it shows that if you run economies based around different ideological principles, you have different results. 
Isn't that crazy? And Japan is like a really prime example because I haven't drunk the neoliberal Kool-Aid. And don't get me wrong, like I've spent a lot of time in Japan and while it is totally, utterly amazing, it has its pluses and minuses like everywhere else. But the point of progress is to look at what is done very well in some places as opposed to others and absorb the good and ignore the things that are not working so well. And if you are making decisions that are beyond a neoliberal framework, if you are doing what Japan is doing, you do keep levers of control over the economy. I mean, let's rem- one of the things I do really love about Japan, the strength of trade unionism in Japan is extremely high and they they have the highest paid retail assistance in the world and the reason why of course is the retail assistance union is part of the same union as the automakers so you have these big, powerful industrial unions that bring people together with them. And I do want to acknowledge that Australia, uh, despite the fact it has a distinct retail union, has the second highest paid retail workers in the world, thanks to our friends at the SDA and the amazing champion that, championing that they do. So there are different components to economies and we don't have to live out this bizarre neoliberal fantasy that if we just keep doing what we've always done and failed, that at some point it will miraculously happen. And yeah. because I'm old, I just want to, one of the reasons why we're sort of trapped in this weird moment with the RBA In the 1990s when I was at university, there was this extremely famous book uh, that was published called The End of History by a philosopher called Francis Fukuyama who essentially said it's all over Red River, neoliberalism has won, capitalism and liberal democracies, that's it. They're so good. They're the path to prosperity. Nothing else will ever happen. And I just want everybody to know that Francis Fukuyama has since said I was wrong, wrong, absolutely wrong, I was wrong, sorry. Well, he certainly was wrong because Japan's Gini coefficient score is 55.8. Ours is 67.4. And closer to zero means uh, less inequality. Closer to one means more inequality. Um, so America's, as you can imagine, is in the 80s, right? Um, so ours is 12 points worse than Japan's. Um, this is, you know, the, the U.S., in the US, the top 1% have nearly 20% of all of the wealth. In Japan, it's closer to, to our number, which is about 9%. So there is a lot to be said to looking at different systems and different models. You know, Japan has a negative cash rate <laughs> and, and low inflation and high levels of employment. You know, and high levels of wage increases. Like it is a, it is an economy that is geared differently. Uh, and there's some really weird stuff around productivity that gets talked about. Uh, and you've seen the RBA talk about productivity in this country. And I've made the point before and I'll make it again. The problem with productivity in this country is the inefficient allocation of capital. It is the inefficiency of corporate executives and the lack of strategic, critical, and and entrepreneurial thinking that goes on that prevents us from fully accessing the productivity benefits of our workforce. That means investing in technology. It means investing in skills. It means finding ways to bring those processes together and create what's called multi-factor productivity. This is something Japan has been doing a lot of in the last 10 years and something that Australia 
just does not do very well at all. Like I want to be clear about one of the reasons why Japan is doing this and why Japan has got to have such a focus on productivity is that Japan went down the road of no immigration. And like immigration to Japan is tiny. Um, Japan is very protective of Japanese citizenship. Uh, for example, if you are married to a Japanese citizen and you're living in Japan and you get divorced, you've got six months to get out of the country. <laughs> like yeah. it's quite full on. And of course, what's happened, as is happening in prosperous societies throughout the world, is that there is a declining birth rate. And if you're not, if you don't have a pro-immigration policy, that means that you have an aging population and productivity becomes a massive issue because you have to find a way. If you if you don't want to admit immigration, that means a smaller number of people have to do more work to sustain a growing number of people who cannot work because they are elderly. Or you have to have more productive processes and better technology and better approaches so that the smaller number of people can achieve the same outputs. And that's a really key point. Like you're absolutely right on the issues around migration. And I don't want to pretend that Japan's a utopia because every country has its faults and flaws, uh, our own amongst them. But the, the issue around productivity in this country is that it's often positioned as somehow or another workers are lazy or just need to do more hours or just need to stay in the office longer or you can't be productive working from home. You know, one of the most productive periods in Australia's most recent history was when the vast majority of Australians were working from home. When you look at the charts, it's very clear there was a spike in labour productivity when people were working from home. And yet business leader after business leader, lobby group after lobby group is arguing for more people to go back into the office more often. And it's got nothing to do with productivity and everything to do with who owns commercial property, who benefits from commutes, uh, and frankly, it's not working people, and it's not even the national economy. It's about doing what they've always done in order to profit in their own little sector. Now, I'm not saying there aren't small cafes that have, weren't negatively impacted by lockdowns, but at the same time, there are also small cafes that popped up in Country towns, regional cities. Like ours. In, Our town had a boom during lockdown. It yeah. was extraordinary. In suburbs, you saw people open cafes around the corner from their homes. You had this decentralisation effect and an increase in productivity. Now, But also, as somebody who's worked in hospitality, I do want to make the point about productivity. Like productivity isn't inherently possible. It's not – it doesn't have – exponential possibility in workplaces. If you are employed as a barista, can I tell you, there are actual limits on how productive you can be based on the physical capacity of your body and the way time works into how many coffees you can legitimately make in an hour. And I like, I mean, I'm I'm not going to say I was the world's best barista. In fact, words like barely competent would be incredibly flattering. I've given my, my experience behind the machine. 
much better at selling wine of all the jobs I've had. But this is part of the, oh, well, we need to make workers more productive. Well, why don't we identify where work can be more productive, what supports are needed to make work productive? Because if we don't have a technology-driven policy, like they do in Japan and in South Korea and and Germany, where government pumps money into education systems and training and research and innovation and has a public policy setting around technological advancement so that production can be assisted by technology and increase in that way. If we're not doing that, this whole, oh, well, we just need people to be more productive is a nonsense. I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely agree with you. There are... Australia has to get its head around the fact that the problem here is not the workers. The problem here is the bosses and has been for some time. And the RBA thinking that it can revert to trashing another couple of hundred thousand households uh, and that somehow or another will magically solve the problem is not just a nonsense, it's insulting, it's damaging, and it's divorced from reality. It hasn't worked for 40 years. It hasn't worked. At least in Japan, when they had problems around stagflation, they went, you know what, we're going to try something different. And what they've tried, as it turns out, economically at least, is working. In terms of inequality, is working. And maybe it's time we here in Australia started to take our lead from places other than the Federal Reserve in Washington uh, or the you know Bank of England over there in uh, Westminster. Well, I think if you want to make your country structurally more like America, you are ensuring outputs of American proportion, and that's not a good thing. I have also spent a lot of time in America. As you well know, like I love American culture. I'm deep into it. But there are massive problems with American culture that have to do with unrestrained free marketeering and individualism and corporate behaviour and winner-takes-all and inequality and those things that I don't think you would find any Australian beyond, you know, a couple of people who are able to stay in Manhattan penthouses because they've got the dollars who think that's the way to go in terms of expressing a society economically. Certainly anybody who's, any Australian who's ever got sick on a trip to the United States and found themselves in the American healthcare system, I'm quite sure is quite a passionate advocate against uh, the neoliberalising of social institutions. I want to acknowledge that this week I've just noticed, I can see on the camera Ben has picked up the dog and it is literally the cutest thing you have ever seen. Hello, Germanicus, I miss you terribly. Uh, one of the um, interesting things that happened this week, which is relevant to this discussion, is that the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne has come out and said that he supports free education, which is extraordinary and thinks that then that we have to return to that wonderful 50-year-old model of free tertiary education in Australia. And this is for two reasons. One, because if you have to pay for education, it keeps out your best and brightest because there is a disincentive to people accessing tertiary education. We have known this in, the, in this country since the introduction of HECS, that HECS is the single largest 
just reason or hex or whatever they call it now, the debt system. But charging students to go to university is the single largest disincentive for people who get the marks to go not going, not wanting to take on debt that they cannot imagine themselves paying off. Hi, my name is Van Batten. I'm 48 years old and I am still paying off my debt from university in the 1990s. But the other thing that's important is that if we're serious about a fairer economic conversation, if we are serious about talking about increased productivity, I say this to corporate Australia, if you want increased productivity, what are you doing to open the universities to a greater diversity of talent to not make ability to pay the determining factor of whether people do get to access education? What are you doing to resource an integrated research system and have that funded properly. The VC from the University of Melbourne was also saying, because he's he's British originally, and saying that Australian research funding is not keeping pace with what the rest of the world are doing. And meanwhile, in Europe, you have these massively expansionist education programs that seek out opportunities to give people as opposed to restrict opportunities Mm. in order to build that research base that enables innovation, better communication. Like these are intersectional systems. Policies and especially economic policies do not exist separately from what else is going on? Well, talking about intersecting economic policies, Van, we do need to talk about the Greens' decision to delay action on housing. This is this is obviously a sitting week. An uh, outrage? Oh, sorry. Oh, it is an it's disgusting, uh, selfish, uh, narcissistic, childish, uh, actually harmful, and criminal. Oh, sorry, yeah. it's not technically criminal. Technically sorry. Not. Sorry, everyone, I take that back. It's not technically criminal. It's just so morally outrageous that it feels like it's criminal. Well, let's go through some of the facts and then we can we can discuss it some more. So on Monday, the Greens teamed up with Dutton's Coalition to delay the Housing Affordability Future Fund until at least October. Uh, the Greens claim they want National Cabinet, that's the Commonwealth and State uh, governments, to discuss rent freezes before they'll vote on whether or not to support the fund. Labor says this will put off $1.3 million a day in investments in social and affordable housing. My calculation, based on uh, researching what a social uh, housing unit costs to build, is that four families a day will miss out or be at least be delayed uh, from accessing housing as a result of this. Now, Green Party activists say that's not right because the fund wasn't due to make distributions until the year 24-25. That's only six months away. And if it passes in October, it can still do it. Now, Van, you pointed out to me that Rose Jackson, who's the housing minister in New South Wales, has made a great TikTok about why that's a ridiculous assertion. Uh, and and because it's these things actually require planning, you can't just go. Here's two hundred million dollars. Build some houses tomorrow. You actually need to go through planning permits. You need to line up builders. You need to line up materials. You've got to find the space. It's not that these things don't exist, but it just takes time. It, it there is a as you would expect in a democracy. There is proper process that has to be followed, and and Rose Jackson's video about this, I think, is just really—it's it's brilliant, isn't it? She really nails it. Yeah, 
Really angry. She's so angry because it's this it, it I can't I genuinely cannot tell whether it is absolutely humiliating political naivety from the greens or actual evil. I can't I can't I cannot discern what has brought them to a point where they think that this is acceptable. There is not a single person in Australia, even the most died-in-the-wool Tory monster, knows that there is a problem with housing in this country, probably because died-in-the-wool Tory monsters are making a fortune putting up rents and, you know, profiteering yeah. off land banking. But it, it, is a, it is a huge problem. And the idea that this small group of people who represent 10% of the electorate, right, that they are, that they call themselves progressive, but they are standing in the way, voting with the Liberals to delay and delay and delay action on housing is, it's, it's, I can't, I just can't even, I just cannot even process what's going on here because it's this idea like Rose Jackson's video is really clear. She's just like actual government. When you're in government, there are processes around how you can spend money. Like there are checks and balances. This is what democracies have fought for and argued for. And I know, obviously, I know people who vote for the Greens who I'm sure think that they are absolute champions as as voters of transparency and accountability and democracy and due process and all those things, that government should have integrity, right? Everybody was, everybody, the Greens were unambiguous about campaigning for a federal ICAC on the basis of, you know, we need transparency and integrity and accountability. Well, what do the Greens actually think goes on in government to make that happen? What that you can just magic up heaps of, you know, housing. You can just you can just go, oh well in October we'll just have housing and snap your fingers. Like government isn't like that. It's no. not like it's not like having servants. You can't just call them and they do the thing you tell them to do. Resources are limited. And part of the just enraging just stupidity of of the housing debate is this fundamental refusal by the Greens to acknowledge that there are material constraints on what you can do that aren't even about money. Who is going to build all this housing, that public housing they want built immediately? Like physically who is going to do that work? Yeah. Because demographically I can tell you, having looked at uh, the breakdowns of Greens voters, it's probably not going to be Greens voters or anyone who's an activist in the party. Don't really move in those circles to be fair. So who is who's doing the plumbing? Where are the plumbers coming from? Where are the electricians coming from? Where is the wood coming from? Has anybody actually considered how housing is built and the fact that there exist productive and material parameters on how much you can do based on the available materials and the the available labour supply? Like, I can't. I just... What on earth? Like, we believe in evidence-based policy, especially around the environment. And really, do you? Do you believe in evidence-based policy? Because you've got people like Rose Jackson, who I've got to say is one of the most committed housing ministers New South Wales has ever had. I literally cannot remember anyone fronting this much of, a, like, of a policy challenge in yeah. this state. I grew up here, you know. And 
And she's essentially screaming with frustration in this TikTok video going, how do you think this works? Like how do you actually think things get built? There's not some magic fairy army that you summon with, you know, like a few peacock feathers and glitter and they just turn up and do it. Like, oh, ah, Ah, extraordinarily frustrating debate because it is either incredibly naive or incredibly disingenuous. <laughs> the The reality around this is that there are 640,000 Australians in housing stress. The Community Housing Industry Association, Homelessness Australia, Property Council, Industry Super Australia, National Shelter, Everybody's Home Organisation, they've all called for this bill to be passed. Nobody has said that the Housing Affordability Fund will solve all of the problems. Literally no one has said that. No one has said that at all. And I want to be really clear about what it is, right? So the Housing Affordability Fund, the half is $10 billion, which will be set up as part of the Future Fund to build 30,000 new social and affordable rental homes in the first five years. Now, that's not the only thing that the uh, Labor Commonwealth Government is doing. They're also providing an additional $67.5 million to states and territories to directly tackle homelessness. They've introduced incentives to increase the supply of rental housing by improving arrangements for investments in build-to-rent accommodation. This is around basically how you finance these things. They've increased the maximum rate of Commonwealth rent assistance by 15%, the largest increase in 30 years. Established the new National Housing Accord, which obviously industry super funds are involved in as well. Invested $350 million to deliver an additional 10,000 affordable rentals over five years as part of that accord made up to $575 million available to the National Housing Infrastructure Facility, uh, the NIFIC, to support more social and affordable housing, invested an additional $2 billion in financing through that initiative to take the total for this financial year to $9.5 billion. $9.5 billion this financial year is in the National Housing uh, a finance and investment corporation, and also help to buy a program so people can uh, buy their own home sooner, and of course, expanding the home guarantee scheme. These are all things the Commonwealth can do and is is doing. But what can't they do, Ben? What can't they do? What are they actually constitutionally prevented from doing? Well, they're constitutionally prevented from doing the thing the Greens are most determined that they should try and do, which is to freeze rents. Now, I understand the idea and I understand that, in fact, it may even be an idea that could work in some circumstances to put in place a freeze or a cap or limits on rent increases. And I don't oppose them, and most people in Labor don't oppose them. But the Commonwealth Constitution does not permit the Commonwealth to do that. In fact, there was a referendum ban. There, was there a were referendum. two referendums. There were two. There was one under Ben Chifley and there was one under Gough Whitlam. Oh, the Greens love to pretend they're the party of Gough Whitlam. Yes, actually, I think you'll find that's historically inaccurate. You are not the party 
of Gough Whitlam. Oh, what would Gough say? Well, Gough would say, here I am trying to run a constitution to be able to affect price and rent controls. And guess what? What happened to those two referendums to change the constitution to give federal government the power to do what the Greens are asking for? They were they were comprehensively walloped. The they people, were walloped. They lost a majority of votes in a majority of states. In in every state, in fact, I think you'll find in both cases. Um, certainly, the first one in 1948, every state it lost by at least ten points, uh, and in some cases, far more. Like this is this is. And I get so they're like, oh well we've changed our demand we that's why we're delaying until you have the meeting with the states and you have to make the states implement uh, rent freezes. Now Rose Jackson in her video makes the point very clearly that at no point have the Greens reached out to her as the New South Wales Housing Minister to discuss rental policy. And in fact, the New South Wales Labor government is doing things around rental policy. The Victorian Labor government is doing things around rental policy. Queensland Labor government is doing things around rental policy. Right around the country, you've got Labor governments doing things about rental policy. And they are talking to each other and they are open to hearing from other sources. However, the double-barreled surname Chamber of Parliament also known as the Greens Party, simply refused to engage with actual process. They simply refuse. They'd much rather grant. They make the demand, they don't do the work. And I'm just, I'm going to call it out for what it is classism. It is the belief that they are of such entitlement and such stature and such individual import that the majority of people, like those Labor people who actually have the responsibility of running the government and doing the policy work and finding the workers and sourcing the material and finding a way to fund it and writing the legislation and all of the other things that need to happen for actual outcomes to take place, that we exist, our community of Labor voters, Labor representatives, Labor politicians, Labor ministers, Labor governments, to serve the Greens. That they can just they can just make demands and someone else, like a servant, will come along and do it for them. And it's and it's played out a little bit in Parliament today, I have to say. There was a an, an exchange uh, between the uh, the Greens housing spokesperson and the Prime Minister, uh, where, quite frankly, the Greens housing spokesperson was just contemptuous of um, the Prime Minister and his position, and you know, a first term um, uh, MP who really only won his seat because a teal didn't run. Let's be really clear about what happened. And there was a redistribution, and and a, and a, a liberal didn't run in the seat. And let's so let's be really. Oh, sorry, I, I'm I'm that's not true. A liberal did run and had a ten percent swing. And where did those liberal votes go? To the green. Yeah, and so let's be really clear about what happened there. You know, in every other part of the country, those seats went teal. In Brisbane, a couple of those seats they went. To the grains, and now teals didn't run in Brisbane, and that's exactly what happened because the teals didn't run. The grains picked up the mood for change, and they benefited from that disillusionment and desire for change. Now, what's happened? They, since- 
yeah, that mood for change from Liberal voters. Yeah. I want to be very, very clear. It wasn't Labor voters who switched sides. And and what's happened since then, of course, is the Labor primary is now polling almost 10 points higher than on election day because people have gone, actually, this Labor government is getting things done. This Labor government is creating jobs, is raising wages at the faster than at any time since 2013, is making investments in health, uh, is starting to talk about how to invest in education, in doing, getting rid of the corruption that was there under the Morrison era, doing all the things that it said it would do, cheaper childcare, cheaper medicines, delivering on its promises. The Greens are now standing in the way once again of a core Labor promise. And and this is what one of the things that really annoys me about, about this is that one of the arguments is so ridiculous. There's a video of the Green spokesperson with a whiteboard trying to map out his understanding of how financial markets work. And I have to say, it is the dumbest three and a half minutes uh, of video on financial markets I think I've ever seen. And I regularly get sent things from crypto bros, which I <laughs> frankly, you know, give it a good run for the money. But um, it is just nonsensical. It is a non, and people love it, right? Because it, it hits all of the key talking points. The stock market is gambling, borrowing money is bad, debt is bad. You know, if you can't, if you can borrow the money to put into investments, just build the houses now. Um, we need guarantees. There's a lot of this kind of, uh, rhetoric and hyperbole. And, you know, look, I opened the show talking about the high priests and the cult of the RBA. So I'm no stranger to hyperbole, right? And this is full of it. Because quite frankly, future funds are an excellent mechanism to finance public policy over the long term. And people go, oh, but we need the housing now. Well, there's $9.5 billion this financial year and the Housing Affordability Fund will set up a mechanism that will allow us to fund social and affordable housing on an ongoing basis. What they say is, oh, but it's gambling because the Future Fund had a negative return last year of 1%. It's like, yeah, it, it did, but it had a positive return the year before, and over the last 10 years, it's had a 9.1% return. So I'm going to do a little bit of maths here because this is important because if you listen to uh, – to the grains, you think that numbers don't actually mean anything and mathematics is just squiggles on a whiteboard, but it's not. It's actually important. If the Commonwealth borrowed the full $10 billion and they borrowed it at the current 10-year bond rate, which is 4.13%, and it achieved the same 10-year return that the Commonwealth Future Fund has been achieving, which, by the way, The Housing Affordability Fund would be one of the funds in the future fund. That's how the Commonwealth has these things set up. It would still be making the $500 million a year minimum that the Albanese Labor government has promised to invest in housing. And, of course, if it performs better than that 10-year average or the cost of borrowing comes down, which we hope it will over the course of the next sort of 6 to 12 months, then the Commonwealth will be able to invest even more, which is the point that Pocock and Lambie keep making, which is the $500 million is the floor, not the ceiling. So instead of 
a 31-year-old art student whose understanding of economics seems to be about as deep as a kiddie's waiting pool, maybe the Lagrange should actually listen to the housing organisations. Maybe they should be listening to some of the people who are involved in actual finance and stop playing to the cliche that somehow or another long-term diversified financial investment markets are gambling because they're not. Gambling is going to the pokies. Gambling is going to the horse races. Gambling is sitting down at a poker table. That's gambling. Investing is measuring risk and return and making decisions based on information that's available to you. It's it's completely different. It's not about luck. <laughs> it's not about luck. It's not about luck. And if it was about luck, then we wouldn't have the, one of the world's best retirement systems in our superannuation system. It's about asset management. It's about portfolio management. It's about diversifying risk. It's about maximizing return. That's what it's about. And this idea that somehow or another, oh, well, we don't like it. We want you to just pour $10 billion into the housing market is just, I can't, like you, I can't tell if it's naive or if it's a political calculus. One thing that makes me think it's political calculus is his positions on this stuff in the past, fan, because he's got right. form. Oh, I mean, he's got magnificent form. There's that infamous photo of him surrounded by other white people uh, in his seat. I don't think it was his seat at the time. I think it's from a couple of years ago, literally holding up signs saying no because they didn't want uh, housing development in the local area. And it, there are literally signs that with the wording of not in my backyard. Words to that effect. The word yeah. backyard is de- no, not in our backyards. No. And this is what NIMBYism is. NIMBY literally stands for not in my backyard. And my issue with the Greens, there are a lot of conspiracy theories around why I'm so antagonised by these people. And fundamentally, everybody, it gets down to this. that Many years ago, I drank the green Kool-Aid Like I was a child of the 1990s. It was a terrible time in the history of the Labor Party. I was at university. I was hanging out with a disreputable crowd and, and, you know, I was an environmentalist and I was, you know, talking about brown pollution in teepees. I don't even want to talk about what my hair was like at the time. And I and I met people like Ian Cohen, Bob Brown and Christine Milne and they were full-on environmentalists and I was like, the environmental catastrophe looms on the horizon. These people, you know, they're, they're doing something about it. And my contact with organised politics, because of my job at The Guardian, because of my when I came back to Australia and was heavily involved in activist stuff here, was the revelation that it was all a lie. And really that political party was just the edifice of organised political narcissism with actually no overwhelming commitment to the left-wing pillars of belief that absolutely define my political existence. They cut the pension. They did a deal with the Liberals to kick 200,000 elderly Australians off their pensions. This is a betrayal of my, you know, traditional British socialist welfare state politics. Then we had the constant delaying on any action around uh, climate when uh, Labor under Rudd and Gillard were trying to bring in an emissions tra- like a, a, a emissions trading scheme and looking at carbon markets and trying to discourage emissions and all of these things that would have been hugely helpful at the time 
and they blocked them. Then there was the absolutely unconscionable blocking around refugee resettlement when Labor under Rudd put up the policy to work with the UNHCR in order to process refugees through Malaysia, um, which is exactly, by the way, what the Greens talk about the golden era of refugee politics under Fraser. That is exactly what Fraser did. Like, yeah. do people understand that that's, exactly. you know, you shorten refugee journeys. I've had this discussion so many times. And again and again, it was revealed to me that this was a party of preening, platforming and obstruction. And I, it just, and I feel guilty. I feel complicit. I feel responsible. Like I handed out for Adam Bant. I believed it. And it was all a lie because now we're sitting in 10 years, the, the effects of 10 years of inaction on the environment. 10 years of just appalling, appalling uh, refugee policy, you know, and, and, and their obstruction creating resentment in the broader electorate that makes, you know, further policy improvements around these areas almost impossible. Like, and it's done in this look at me, look at me, left of them thou, you know, rhetoric, mm. which actually does more to stop progress, to stop any kind of left-wing action, to impede the status quo, to impede any challenge to the status quo, and in fact affirm the dynamics of what's causing the problem in the first place. That's who the Greens are. That's what they do. And around housing, like let's be really honest about what's going on here. Who votes for the Greens? Where are they? They're in the most infrastructure-rich parts of capital cities, right? The highest votes for the Greens, like those seats in Brisbane. Those seats in Brisbane are right in the centre of Brisbane. The seat of Brisbane is a is a green seat now. Like these are communities with more hospitals, more schools, more public transport than anywhere else. This is, you know, the seat of Melbourne, another, yeah. you know, green seat. Classic example, right? This is where their voters are. And yet again, and their state seats as well, state seat of Balmain in New South Wales, again and again and again, they squat on top of, that rich infrastructure and they do not want to share it. You had the member for Balmain speaking against development going, well, we don't want new people, like we don't want new people, other people, those people coming into our community. There's all this rhetoric about heritage and the character of the area. Well, I'm very old and I remember North Melbourne, you know, many years ago, now part of the green seat, North Melbourne was where you went to get mugged, all right? If they want to affirm the heritage of the area, I suggest they ever all the Greens voters who live in North Melbourne now hand over their wallets, like it, literally in the street at night time, because that was the heritage of the area. It was a very, very rough part of town. It's yeah. where you went if you were someone like me and you couldn't afford to drink somewhere like Fitzroy. So, which also used to be a pretty raggedy area. Can I just say these were traditional working class communities? That was the heritage of the area. You know, and but this this garbage that they use to essentially put entire suburbs under heritage protection is entirely about squatting on infrastructure, keeping other people out, and homogenizing these gross, classist, bourgeois enclaves of the new urban squatocracy. And that's what the opposition to public housing, social housing, and all the obstructions that they throw in the way again and again and again. They stopped the bill of public housing for homeless old people in Richmond through a local council decision because one tree was in the way. 
one tree. You have to stay homeless, old people. This tree is more important than you. So they have no credibility of this issue. It is lie after lie after lie after lie, obstruction after obstruction, and it makes me sick. Yeah, and couldn't agree more. And just to just to round out this topic, the 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 naivety of the green spokesperson uh, on housing is, I think, actually somewhat less about naivety and more about politics. Uh, when you think back to the fact that he has run a platform saying cities are the new factories. Uh, and this really is had, really this has irritated you, hasn't it? It really has. It's got under my skin because it's a misuse of the idea, which is that cities need to be properly resourced, people need to have a say in how they're developed, uh, and that actually you need uh, communities within cities to do that. Instead, what he's done is he's twisted this idea and used it as an anti uh, development uh, concept to stop more people uh, getting access to infrastructure. You know, the kind of great lie about floodplains, all of Brisbane is a floodplain. You know, you only need to look at the history of Brisbane to realise that it doesn't matter where you build in Brisbane, you're building on a floodplain. And quite frankly, if it was good enough for an army barracks, a multi-storey building is probably a safer place to be in a flood than a, a single-storey set of army barracks. Th- these people are not genuine in their objections. And as you say, Van, they do it at a federal level. They campaign saying, oh, we're trying to do something real and meaningful, uh, but never actually do anything. And then at a local level, they campaign to stop development, to stop new homes being built. And actually what they do is they, they achieve their outcomes at a local level by stopping uh, people coming into the community. The essential workers who need to work in those hospitals, the teachers who need to go to those schools, the sanitation workers who need to pick up the rubbish, they're more than happy for working people to have a two-hour commute, uh, you know, to serve them at uh, brunch, but they're not happy to have them live nearby. Look, Van, we need to move on because another big piece of legislation that has actually passed the parliament this week is the referendum machinery bill. This means the government must now call a referendum no later uh, sorry, no earlier than in two months' time, but no later than in six months' time. That's what a machinery bill does. It's, uh, there has to be an issuing of writs. The Governor-General will do that. So it's, this doesn't set the date, but it sets the window of time in which a referendum must be called. Most people are predicting an October referendum. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that's that's the most likely uh, time, you know, avoid footy finals before spring racing, all the usual tropes around when you have people come out to vote um, come into play. Uh, and look, Van, we're already seeing some pretty disgusting campaigning. I mean, even in the parliament itself, there were some horrendously uh, racist things said um, by Pauline Hanson, among among no others. No way, Pauline Hanson being racist. Yeah, like wow, parliamentary privilege to just uh, say the most bizarre things, and we're going to see more of this. There's no question. This inversion, this idea that somehow or another, recognizing the oldest continuous civilization on Earth in our constitution is in itself racist. That's the that's the kind of argument they like to make, but also you know these 
deeply personal attacks on people who are advocating for uh, the voice and for constitutional reform. I want, I want to point out and give a shout out to Thomas Mayo, our good comrade uh, and trade union uh, colleague. You know, he's been attacked by the Murdoch press pretty relentlessly uh, over the last couple of days. I know others have been as well. Uh, this idea that somehow or another uh, that Thomas, who who's written children's books about uh, unionism, about uh, being uh, an Aboriginal man, uh, you know, is somehow or another going to burn down everything that makes Australia great is frankly just bizarre. It's fear-mongering uh, and it's, a you know, just misinformation. I mean, the, the AEC has issued reminders about authorising material. Of course, our podcast is authorised by me. Uh, because misinformation is rife. It's out there already. Warren Mundine uh, is pushing it. This idea, the, at the core of this uh, is that somehow or another uh, constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people uh, and having a constitutionally enshrined body that is allowed to make representations on issues related to policy regarding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is in itself racist, is, you know, is the biggest lie so far, and I think it will be the lie from which all other lies that no campaign tells uh, will stem. Uh, but, Van, this is going to be a deeply uh, a deeply brutal campaign in many ways. Oh, yes, because they enjoy it. <laughs> That's, the evidence suggests that they enjoy it. They use this as, like, some kind of... <laughs> Some kind of far right, you know, purge weekend. You know those purge movies? Yeah. Oh, we yeah. behave all the time apart from this one weekend where you can kill whoever you like. I mean, we saw this around marriage equality where people who I'm sure um, thought or said to themselves they were great pillars of the community and, you know, good moral people went absolutely off chops with the most homophobic garbage you could possibly imagine. We see it whenever trans issues are mentioned. There's a cohort who, if they're given a platform to be transphobic garbage, will be as transphobic as they can possibly be. And we're going to see it in The Voice where people think that there's a channel for a bit of euphemistic racism and a bit of just absolutely outright racism. And they know, like, and this is what I hate, this is, you know, the, the iron law of bigots is they know that their bigotry silences people because mm. it reminds the people who they're silencing. Hello, phone is ringing. Um, it reminds the people who they're silencing of the trauma they have experienced in other places at the hands of bigots. And that's why they do it. It's a political tactic. Like, you know, if if you are from a marginalised community that has experienced marginalisation through, oh, I don't know, like violence, constant harassment, denial of opportunities, economic, structuralised economic inequality, they're all deeply traumatic experiences. And letting the yahoos off the leash in order to engage the rhetoric uh, that informed that big rhetoric in the first place reaffirms the marginalisation of those people. It's so unbelievably Disgusting. The way that Thomas Mayer has been attacked in the newspapers run by those people is just sick. It's actually sick. 
Like, and because what you see, whenever I see this kind of hatred bubble up in a mainstream media source, uh, my stomach clenches because I know online it will be a hundred times worse. And some of the tweets that I have seen directed at Thomas Mayer on the, that have been given social permission by the, the propaganda, the right wing propaganda uh, promulgated in those mastheads it's it's vile and like you and I are very good comrades with Thomas we've known him for a long time like it's not like he's the kind of person to be intimidated but they attack the strong to terrify the weak that's what they do and they and I and they get off on it. They enjoy it. You know, these people only understand privilege as a relative term. Like they don't understand like privilege or opportunity as a sense of responsibility. Like if you've got more than someone else, your responsibility is to find a way for them to have as much. That's not the mindset they come from. No. Privilege is only a thing that's enjoyable if you can constantly reinforce that you have something that somebody else doesn't have. That's the fundamental ideological divide. And, yes, maybe I do think uh, of that paradigm when I think about the bourgeois squatocracy in the cities with all their lovely, lovely infrastructure that they are denying to the people who do the work for them. Maybe I think of that as well. You know, one suspects families get together at Christmas and share rather a lot of dominant worldviews. But it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be really rough and it is really important that people are prepared to stand up and uh, to stand, not just stand up and be counted, but to stand up in solidarity with who are going to be targeted by these attacks because it's going to be horrible for people, yeah. just like it was in marriage equality. And we've got to do the same thing. We've got to show up. We've got to yep. create spaces. We've got to be militant. And there you know, are- these are the things we have to do. And there are lots of local events happening. The Yes 23 campaign is running heaps of events. There's a big day happening on July 2nd. People can check that out online. Unions for Yes are campaigning in workplaces around the country and in communities around the country. Again, I'd encourage you to join your union to get involved in that. AustralianUnions.org.au slash wow. That's how you join your union. You can follow links through there to find some of the campaign uh, activities that are going on, you know, I think almost every union uh, in the country, I haven't heard of one that's not supporting um, the the Yes campaign uh, and campaigning for Yes. Van, look, today I want to uh, end on a piece of good news that is a little bit different. We normally do an environmental story, uh, but the good news is actually about the referendum uh, because there's a lot of noise about the referendum, and there's a lot of negative media coverage, and Warren Mundine's out there every day, and Pauline Hanson's out there all the time, and even Lydia Thorpe now has confirmed she's campaigning against uh, the voice uh, and campaigning for the no side in the referendum. But the good news is that if the referendum were held today, which obviously it's not, but if it were held today, uh, it would win. Um, the average support state by state across polls as of the 11th of June was 62% in favour of New South Wales, 62% in favour in Victoria, 57% in favour in Queensland, 53% in South Australia, and 52% in WA. The Guardian has done a big piece on looking at all the polling, 
looking at the averages, looking at how it all breaks down. Um, the Greens were there 12% of the primary vote or 12% support across the country. 83% of Greens support a yes position. Labor, with its 41-point primary, 41% of people support Labor. 72% of those people uh, in favour. The good news about the Liberal primary dropping so low uh, is that only 34, uh, 43% sorry, of them support the yes. Now, of other other political supporters, One Nation, United Australia, so on, only 38% support. So there's a very clear um, political uh, split going on. Um, and there's also a demographic age split. The only group of people uh, by age who, d- who don't support the voice are those over 55. But even there, 40% of people over 55 do support the voice. So, you know, I think some people think that everyone over 55 is against it. That's not true. Four out of 10 people over 55 do support it. Uh, those numbers are obviously better for younger cohorts, people in our age bracket, 35 to 54, 61%, so that's six out of 10. And in the 18 to 34 bracket, it's 84%, so nearly uh, just over eight and a half out of, not well, nearly eight and a half out of 10. These are good numbers. These are solid numbers. And despite the media rhetoric coming out of Murdoch's toilet rag and the boss's pamphlet, the voice is actually on track to win. And we need to remember that as we campaign and talk to people that the majority of Australians uh, across polling over time, even today, and a snapshot numbers today, support constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and support the enshrinement of a body that gives them voice on issues that impact them uh, that are before the parliament and the government of the day. That's a, that's a phenomenally good news story. It is. It is a phenomenally good news story. And, like, I mean, I'm, I am confident in Australia's capacity to be better, I'm confident in the capacity of Australians to be fairer. What defines us as a country is whenever the choice has been put before us as a people to be more or less fair, we have always picked fair. And, you know, we did that with marriage equality. We did that at the height of the Cold War when Robert Menzies wanted to ban the Communist Party and make a political association illegal in Australia. At the height of the Cold War, all of that propaganda, reds under the beds, duck and cover, imminent nuclear annihilation, the whole thing, and Menzies was at his most popular. Australians said no because fairness is more important to us. And I shudder to think about what is going on with people voting no and and what is the what is the reason for that? Because like this reverse racism thing is a furphy. It's a nonsense. Yes. You know, all of these arguments about oh, is the voice going to have a say? Is the voice going to have a say on how um, Australian soldiers behave overseas? Like the most amazing, like nonsense kind of stuff. Mm. And or alternatively, uh, we don't want the the voice because we want a sovereignty model. And it's like if if you can't get popular support for a voice, 
where are you going to get popular support for a sovereignty model? Like the majority of people who are voting no aren't voting no because it's not good enough. They're voting no because they don't want there to be recognition at all. Yeah. Is there like... Is there a maths problem going on with people? Like, do people understand how majorities work? I think there are. I think there are uh, segments of uh, the Greens or, or former elements of the Greens who who do genuinely have a maths problem. As, as I pointed out, that whiteboard video was just uh, there were no numbers uh, and there was no mathematics done. Uh, certainly uh, beyond. Uh, uh, the most basic uh, one plus one equals four kind of an approach. Then, I do say one really politically cynical thing. If you're <laughs> ever confused as to how a person has risen in politics despite the lack of charisma or apparently talent, let me give you a tip. It's because they can count. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and look, you know, Van, the. This podcast has been so successful uh, for us. We hit top 10 in the politics charts this week. Uh, we are out charting all of those right wing, you know, um, Senator Antich and, uh, you know, Steve Bannon. We've beaten them all now. And it's because people, they like, they comment, they share, they talk about this podcast. Uh, they, and there are people who do help us out financially. And those those contributions uh, every week go into us building the audience, getting the podcast into the ears of more people, people who would never have found us in any other way. We do target them with ads. There's no question. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not ashamed of it. We absolutely do. And we do it because we want people to get the message. And there are people who give one-off contributions and we're so grateful for that people who give a buck a week hugely important part of our supporter base and our extend the reach supporters who give 10 bucks a month and our cadre who chip in a full 20 dollars a month without you we would be nowhere near the million downloads that we are going to hit not in the not too distant future very exciting uh, and it's because of you now on sunday i did my first q a session uh, with listener questions We've already got more questions uh, for this Sunday. Uh, if you're a supporter, you can jump on, send us a message through our Buy Me A Coffee page. That's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. If you're not a supporter, just send us an email. Uh, but, you know, those supporters really make this possible. And, Van, we like to give them a shout-out. Have you got our cadre list there in front of you? I certainly do. Is everybody ready? Uh, if I stumble, it's because the text, because I'm in Sydney, is incredibly small. All right, here we go. Our cadre, Anne Coleman, Joe Lockery, Steph, Karina Bali, Chancy Campbell, Leona Gibbon, Shane Horsfall, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gal Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Matthew Hadley, Colm Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, Ad, Anthony Balden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Burris, Kristen Sakluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aiking, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Ad Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Ad Ross Kenner, 888, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Trunk Veteran, Ad Jenny Forster, 7, Bronwyn Cockington, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandal Tui, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Richard Sands, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniel, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Chiggles. I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers. At Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3, McCabe, Marissa, Simon Cadigal, Lauren Ash and Banjo. At Narangaman, Don Sharp and Peter Bath, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. 
and our extend the reach supporters are Helen, Jeremy Mao, Rosie Elliott, Lara at Robert Knopfield One, Michael Wales, Sanj Kelly, Darina, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Uran, Kathy Burgess, Melanie Dinning, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope at K Not at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Nandita, Hannah Moore, Louise Hawker, Megan Wickett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, Gal Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah. Elian and Andrew, Iva Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda Sam, Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizard Twiddle, Bunkum Basher, Caddy Ward, At The Real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart, At Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, At Big Game Bit, Adrian Valente, Mitzritza, At Carriedale 68, Frank Nahus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapina, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Carrie Arthur, and Pauline Bate. A huge congratulations to all of you and to you, Van, for getting through all of that. It's a longer and longer list every week. And the font is really tiny. <laughs> hey, thank you, everyone. Um, I'm sorry that Ben and I have been a bit down. Like, it's been a really difficult day. And yeah, I feel better for doing the show, knowing that you guys are there. We really appreciate the support that we get. We love it when you check in with us on social media and respond and share our stuff and tag us into things. Um, unfortunately, because Ben and I do take a position on the political issues of the day and because we uh, we don't hide our beliefs from anybody, we can cop absolute rubbish on the internet. And Ben, somebody attacked your mother on Twitter today and I know it was really hard for you uh your mother is an absolutely wonderful person and i was i can i just say my response to the attack was murderous i'm not going to murder anybody but i am going to say that your support dear listeners um online and everywhere else does actually it, it 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 lowers the temperature that can be provoked by certain other uh people and whatever their problem is yeah a huge thank you to everybody for your support. In fact, I've just received some text messages from people uh, who do normally listen to the show uh, about that uh, those attacks and just reiterating their ongoing support. It really means the world to us both. Uh, don't forget to send in your questions. I will try and answer them on Sunday. Uh, and until then, love you, Vanny. Oh, I love you too. I miss you. Look after the dog. I will. Bye. Bye.